Welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate Professor of Geology and Peace and Conflict Studies, Karen Harp, along with four of her students, Rizako Yang, Jacob Pillowa, Katie Weber, and Jacqueline Stern. Professor Harp specializes in instrumental and analytical techniques in the geosciences, including volcanology and geochemistry, project-based learning, and integrating online education with classroom experiences. Harp studies the geochemistry and petrology of hotspots and the mantle of the earth, with a current focus on the origin and evolution of the Galapagos Islands, deep mantle origins of plumes and plume ridge interactions. Professor Harp completed her undergraduate studies at Dartmouth College and her master's and PhD at Cornell University. Her work has been published in dozens of academic journals, and she's a constant innovator in the classroom, always seeking to utilize new technologies to educate and enlighten. Professor Harp, Rosako, Jacob, Katie, and Jacqueline, welcome to 13. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here, Dan. Well, we're glad to have you. This is also our first uh, recording with uh, five people, I think. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I will jump right into question one. Uh, Professor Harp, I, I want to start off by asking a few questions just about your work, and um, specifically, I think it would be good to start with some definitions, um, like what exactly is geochemistry and petrology, and how do they relate to uh, the work you've done in the Galapagos? Oh, that's a big question. Um, we could break it up if it's too big. Okay, so... Well, geochemistry is using the chemical composition of anything to learn about how the earth works. So the geo is for earth, the chemistry is for chemistry. So what I do, and petrology is the study of the origins of rocks, where petros is from rock, not from oil, <laughs> like everyone thinks. Mm. Um, so what I do is I look at the chemistry of rocks that are erupted in volcanic settings to try and figure out what's going on inside the earth. So the analogy is a little bit weird, but it works. If you think of it like a doctor, they'll take blood work, um, they'll take your temperature, but since you can't actually go poke your liver necessarily or, or do any kind of invasive work, you have to use those clues to figure out what's going on inside the body. We do the same thing with the chemistry of the earth. We use things that come out of the earth to try and figure out what's going on inside. So I look at lava from volcanic systems and I determine the composition in terms of what elements are in it. And that in turn tells us all sorts of things about how we generated the magma, um, how deep it was generated, what material is mixing in with it to make it and things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, really neat. Um, so the way it relates to the Galapagos is the Galapagos are formed by a uh, column of hot rock that rises from the core mantle boundary. It's called a mantle plume. And there's a bunch of those around Iceland's mantle plume, the Easter Islands, the Azores, things like that, places like that. And Hawaii is sort of the type locality of mantle plumes, the most studied one. And so it's a relatively young idea mantle plumes it's only a few decades old and we're still learning how that all works 
And there's all sorts of discoveries happening related to how deep these originate, what makes up these mantle plumes, how they get to the surface. And so the Galapagos is a great place to study that. Hmm. And that's what I'm trying to understand. How did you get interested uh, in this subject? And what are some of the more interesting findings you've uncovered throughout the years um, doing this work? Uh, the whole series of happy accidents, I'd say, really, uh, that I got into Galapagos work. I um, started as a chemist because I had a great chemistry prof for organic chemistry as an undergrad, to be honest. I was going to be a geologist. I veered into chem. And then I discovered the word geochemistry, which was a very exciting moment for me because the two actually could do both of them together. We could use chemical methods to understand how the earth works. And I went to grad school originally in chemistry, but didn't like so much the, the application to straight up chemical questions. I, I really wanted to understand more about how the planet worked. So I migrated over to the geology department and the only geochemist over there at the time was a gentleman who was working on the Galapagos Islands. He'd just gotten a grant to do that. Hmm. And so I kind of fell into that as a grad student and it's been um, really hard to stop working there because it's such an amazing place. Hmm. So it's, like I said, happy accidents. And then, you know, outside of the the rocks and the, the, the molten lava, uh, there's also some work that you've done uh, with online experimentation and, and different um, trying to utilize different methods of teaching. Uh, and in 2014, uh, I know you ran, uh, you created it and ran a hybrid kind of course that was called mm-hmm. the advent of the atomic bomb. Uh, can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that was in the era when our president at the time was experimenting, I guess, with the, to see what we could do with online ed. It was sort of the era of the massive open online course, the MOOCs. And um, he asked if I would be willing to offer a MOOC. And I was not because I didn't understand why at a small liberal arts institution, I would want to not pay attention to the students at the school and instead do something for everybody else. So instead I proposed doing a hybrid where I would integrate people from the quote unquote outside with the students who were on campus because I already had a class on the bomb and I already was using um, the incredible talents and generosity of Colgate alums as in that course. I'd been doing that for a while. We were just having discussion boards and I would invite because, you know, a room full of 20 year olds who are great. No offense to any 20 year olds, a room full of 20 year olds talking about 1945 it's really tough to get a, a sense of, of what was really going on or what the mindset was or so forth. And so um, this was an idea given to me by some alums when I first started teaching ages ago. Was, you know, why couldn't the alumni talk to the students and, and have conversations with them and share their experiences and their knowledge? And so every time I taught the class, I put out a call for alumni to join in the conversations. But all the alumni got was literally a discussion board, period. They didn't get the class. They didn't get the content. I said, well, here's the book. You can read the book. That was all I could do. So um, when this option came up, uh, we were messing around with the edX platform. We tried to find a way to get the content of the course to the alumni and to bring the alumni more into the classroom and integrate with more with the students. So we were playing around with sort of 
dialing up that intensity of interaction between the alumni and the students to have more conversations, more questions, more engagement, basically. And we tried a bunch of different methods to try to do that. Um, discussion board based, of course, too, but we had people making videos. We had little discussion groups going, subgroups to try and connect people more intensely. And the the really fun part about it to me was I offered the class twice. Um, the first time, first time we just tried to figure out how to make it work at all, right? It was just, can we function at all? And with a huge amount of help from um, people in IT in particular, especially like Ahmad and Rich Grant and um, Doug Watson all helped do just massive amount of work to get this thing up and running at all. And then what happened is a bunch of students um, who were in the Benton Scholars Program were looking for a project. And so they joined in for the second iteration and we dug in and, and as a team tried to improve the class. And so we did a bunch of experimental attempts to increase the interaction with the alumni and between the alumni and the students. So that's where this whole notion of, of really getting students involved in the teaching of a class originated. Hmm. That's really neat. And then you've had, a, you've had some more online courses since then, right? Or at least, I don't know if they were hybrid online. Um, I think mainly it was the bomb class twice. Yeah. And I've always had the alums engaged in some form or another. But if I did, I don't did remember. Did you do Red X? Was that your? Oh, yeah. I totally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was another big experiment um, where a first year seminar was tasked with designing a two week course for middle school kids to teach them about sort of emerging global challenges, which was the name of the course. And so they chose to do it through the lens of bread, you know, food, food, food supply chain, you know, nutrition, um, sort of sources of distribution of food, access to it, nutritional issues. I just said all that twice. Anyway, you understand what I'm trying to say. There are, there's a lot of different issues that, that play into producing a loaf of bread and where it goes and and where it ends up. And so each student took different components of that story and developed it into the course. And then we offered it to several hundred middle school kids in a one time only offering <laughs> that had its ups and downs for <laughs> sure. But it was a really interesting experiment too. Thank you for remembering. That. Yes, you bet. Um, so, I, you know, that kind of leads into now, right? And the, the course that you folks just completed and, and why we have uh, all of these students with us. So tell me a little bit about that course um, and maybe we'll dig into that a little bit. Uh, so the current course is still called Emerging Global Challenges. It was very uh, vague title. It's a, it's a core scientific perspectives course. So it's sort of deals with how science and the world interact with each other in various forms. And um, the course originated team taught by an assistant dean of scholars, Peter Cherhart and I, who were both running the Benton Scholars Program at the time. So we initiated that first year seminar for the Bentons on these big topics, water supply, urbanization, global warming, those kinds of topics. We taught it kind of conventionally the first round and, and in our zeal to try and develop the Benton program more, 
this is a group of students who like really want to do stuff just to generalize who are who tend to be accepted on the basis of being real doers action oriented and so we were trying to galvanize the group to to get them moving and we'd have great conversations about what to do but we'd never get anywhere we just would spin our wheels and have fun conversations and so peter and i um started to play around with this notion of design thinking, kind of a structured way to develop ideas and solutions to complex or wicked problems. And it, it originates in a lot of different places. It's kind of grounded out in the, in the um, production world in the sense of generating materials in business, but it's also so so broad and so vague that it's not fair to totally characterize it that way, the design thinking method. It, it's been kind of um, anchored, the Stanford Design School. It's also been promoted a lot by groups, uh, sort of innovation groups, innovation consulting groups like IDEO. And um, it's fundamentally, from my slightly biased scientific perspective, it's fundamentally the scientific method, right? So someone's designing, someone tells you to design a new pair of sunglasses, right? You can go out and design the coolest looking sunglasses you've ever designed. They might not work that well as sunglasses, right? What you really need to do is go out and watch people using sunglasses. When do they squint? What do they do? How do they interact with them? Do they push them up a lot? Do they hurt their ears? And then you design something in response to the data that you collected about those, right? So it really does mirror the scientific method. But then what you do is you go out and you, you make a prototype and you test those on people and you see what the reactions are. And they say, well, you know, it really digs into the back of my ears and I, I can't keep the sunglasses slipping off my nose. And you readjust the product until you hit something that works for the people that you're trying to design it for, right? So it's a simple process that way, but um, there are lots of, there's kind of a, and I'm stealing a term that, Risako used the other day in a conversation we had, but it's a mindset in terms of being open to feedback and testing and criticism and where your whole goal is to iterate and iterate and iterate until you end up in the right space and realize that what you did to get to that, whatever position you're in at that moment, um, all contributes to it. You didn't waste any time, right? Failing wasn't a bad thing. You learned from it. And so Peter and I, that was really long-winded. I'm sorry. Um, then Podcasts Peter are great I, like that. You can just keep talking. <laughs> yeah, people can always just skip it, I suppose. <laughs> um, so Peter and I used kind of a design thinking structure with a group of about 15 Benton scholars at the time. And in an extracurricular setting, like Wednesday evenings, we would get together for about an hour and a half and we designed a class around design thinking. It's very meta. Right, so we used design thinking to design a design thinking class that then Peter and I offered two times before he went to Texas State University as the dean of the honors, one of the deans of the honors college there. Um, and in that class, in that second offering of the class, three of the students who are here today were Katie, Jacqueline, and Jacob. They took the class, mm. and their class was focused ultimately on. Um, environmental kinds of questions dealing with waste basically so they were coming up with big ideas to address waste on campus primarily so i guess i should back up just for one second the premise of the course that the students designed initially and then that peter and i taught was that you would use the design thinking method 
first on a small project for a few weeks, and then on a major project for about 10 weeks in groups. So all group-based, all project-based. The students in general would choose, the students would, in those first two offerings, chose the theme of the whole course. Hmm. How many students um, are we talking about? We're talking about 25, okay. 28 students in each class. Okay. And then they also, they dig down and they ultimately refine the design question they're trying to solve. And then, so it's all student driven and you never really know what's going to happen the next day because you don't know what anyone's going to develop as they work together. So these three students, um, Jacob, Jacqueline, and Katie emerged from this class in pretty independently, um, tracked me down and said, this is great stuff. We want to keep thinking this way. We want to keep working this way. They, they did some really cool projects that they can tell you about. Um, and then we started to, uh, with another student as well, Kyle Brigenti, we, we started meeting extracurricularly again, uh, once a week or so to see what we could do with design thinking and innovative thinking around campus. And we ended up running some workshops like for the teachers advisory council. And they also dug in hard to help improve the design class, the emerging global challenges class. And so that next fall, so now this is 2017, 18. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, so now we're in fall of 2018. And so um, through the spring of 18 and the summer of 18, they all helped restructure the class mm. to improve it, which is, you know, totally invaluable from my perspective because I didn't take it, right? I offered it. So I don't know what it was like to be in it. They did. So we did a whole lot of work on it. And then Jacob and Kayo, because Katie and um, Jacqueline were abroad, Jacob and Kayo helped teach it as my co-instructors, which was um, a really great experience and a huge amount of work for them. Well, and for me, but for them too, like way over and above any reasonable amount of work to ask of anybody. And then the then Rosako joined our team. Um, she had experience working with design thinking that she can tell you about as well. Working with um, younger kids in Japan, but she can tell you about that. And we sucked her into this group, uh, whether she wanted to or not, but she did. And that's been awesome because it brought a new perspective for us. And then the four of us worked again on this version of the class that was offered this last semester. Originally, Katie. Jacob and Jacqueline were teaching it with me. And then, then Rosako had to come home from London and she was, you know, home in California. And so we just pulled her in again. And so the four of us have been teaching it online and that was a really remarkable experience, which I'm sure they can talk about. All right. So uh, Rosako, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experience as a student and um, some of the work that you did as you helped uh, Professor Harp teach this new class. Yes, so like Carrie mentioned, I joined the team as they transitioned to online learning. Um, and so how this team works is that though Karen is technically the professor, we are here to question literally everything she brings up. So when she tries to suggest something, we say, how about this? How about that? How can we push it in a different direction? How can we rethink the suggestion? And so same works with anything we bring up. As a team, we think about pushing the idea in a new way. And though we might return to the original idea, this conversation really helps us think about how to shift the curriculum moving forward. And so I got to join the conversation that the team was having about moving online. And so the question was, how can we 
continue human-centered design um, moving forward. Online, when we don't have that in-person chemistry or the natural kind of conversation that leads to a lot of creativity and design thinking. So I kind of came to give them a different perspective. They were working so hard on it <laughs> to the point that they couldn't, they were stuck in the project of teaching design thinking. That kind of, I think <laughs> I tried to pull them back to teaching it because teaching a human-centered design is quite different from doing it yourself. When you're completely immersed in the project, thinking about different phases um, versus teaching it, you can really think about the big picture. So how does this phase lead to the next phase? How does how do the different phases kind of combine together to lead to the final product? Um, and so that's kind of the part, the different part of the course or teaching the course that I got to join the team in. Um, and it's been an amazing experience to work with them. Um, it's a really creative space. I think the students will be able to testify to that, um, but there's a lot of natural kind of easy conversation that leads to new ideas, that leads to creative solutions to unexpected problems, the unexpected problem being teaching online. Um, so it's really just been an amazing experience working with a group of such creative, motivated, high energy people. We spent so many hours <laughs> a week together on Zoom. I, we joked that we saw more of each other than we saw our family. Um, so that's kind of been what it's like working with this group. Nice. Jacqueline, how about you tell us a little bit about what you've done uh, as a student and as a teacher? Sure. Um, so as Karen mentioned, I was in D-Lab, I think it was 2.0, um, with Katie and with Jacob. Um, my group in the class created a storybook for children. It was an interactive storybook. Um, and so I think, and it was meant to teach um, sustainability values. I left the key part out there. Um, but that was when I entered the class, that was kind of the last place I expected to end up. So I think just going through the process for that first time was super exhilarating. Um, tons of energy, as Rosako was saying, a really creative space that I hadn't experienced before. Um, and so it kind of hooked me. And then we just kind of kept meeting and looking for new projects. Um, and it kind of came back full circle for me, I guess, my last semester as a senior, being able to help out with the course that I had originally took that introduced me to this group of people and design thinking. Um, so, I mean, I would kind of echo everything Rosaka just said, but um, I just working with this group of people has been incredible. Um, we really build off each other, listen to one another and try to push each other to create better ideas, to make the class better, to engage students more. Um, I think we got a lot of good feedback, um, but what's fantastic about working with these people and working in this mindset, <laughs> our buzzword, is that there's always, you can always improve and there's always more. Um, so that's one thing that I've taken away from this experience. Um, and being able to learn from the students, learn from the co-teachers as well um, to improve our our leadership skills in the classroom, um, especially with the shift to online, was extremely valuable. How about you, Jacob? 
Yeah, so um, like Jacqueline and Karen said, I was in that sort of uh, D-Lab 2.0 in, I guess, the fall of 2017. Um, during that class, Katie and I were in the same group for our larger project. Um, so I'll only talk a little bit about that so she can have some too. But uh, we were looking at how um, like general waste was circulated in and around campus. So people were throwing out you know, textbooks and computers and fridges and what we could do to sort of mitigate that. Um, following that class, like the others had said, I became really interested in the types of problems we were able to solve uh, and the method by which we solved them. So um, I got involved with this group. Um, one thing that I think I really appreciate about teaching the class specifically, um, both in the fall of 2018 and this past semester, is um, I eventually want to be like a teacher for myself. And so it gives me a sets of sets of skills that I literally don't get in classes. Um, and like Karen and I were talking the other day, like the classes that I tutor, I'm never in class. It's always outside of class, one-on-one -on -one with students. And so it's really like diving in and teaching full on, um, which is, you know, really nice prep for what I want to do in the future. Um, <clears throat> another thing that I think is really unique about working with this group is like we adopt various roles that we just stick and get really good at. And that's what's made like this last semester going online so easy, I think, and so fluid for this group. Um, so like we would go over the class, you know, 200 times in advance before we would have our lecture. Um, I personally was in charge of like all of the online resources, sending out the links, making sure all the students were in the right place. Um, I know Jacqueline was sharing the slides. Of course, we were all lecturing the slides, but it's that synergy that we developed, you know, as a whole unit that really made the online, the transition to online, um, both easy and successful. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a, a whole variety of things I could say about why I like working with this group, but those are a few of the things that really stand out to me. Hmm. Katie, tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, so uh, as Jacob said, he and I were in the same group when we took the class way back when. And in order to uh, kind of like mitigate the amount of trash that was being created, um, in the form of like books that weren't going to be returned or like microwaves, kind of all of those random things that students at Colgate throw out at the end of the semester. Um, we developed the makings of an app in which Colgate students could securely uh, trade stuff with each other. So say you had like a challenges book that you didn't need, but you knew it was going to be taught again in the following semester, um, you would be able to uh, find somebody on campus and trade it with them so that it wasn't being thrown away in the trash um, and stuff like that. And that was a really cool experience. Um, it was a lot of fun and we were super proud of our final product um, and all of that. As for teaching the course, one of my favorite parts of teaching that course is that you get to teach in an innovative and pretty unconventional way. Um, it's a lot of fun. Like if you were to walk into our classroom on one of the days that we were teaching, like half of us are standing on tables, there's post-it notes all over the walls. Like it's just not a classroom that you would typically walk into. Um, and even though we weren't all in the same space online, we still got to kind of try to create that chaos um, and make it fun and make it unconventional. And that's one of my favorite parts of teaching is that it's trying to like leverage education, leverage different teaching styles um, and make learning fun and different. Uh, and I've found a lot of spaces in which that I've worked with uh, creating and trying to do education in an unconventional and innovative way. 
Um, one of the hardest parts for me was, so Jacob would send out all the links. I was in times of moving people throughout breaking breakout rooms. Uh, so there was one day where we brought in 20 people outside of the class and had to move them throughout all of the breakout rooms in a very systematic and cyclic manner. And I had like a giant grid of everybody's names. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, like Sally has to go to this room next, but there's somebody else in this room and I have to move them there. And it was very stressful, but it was really cool. It was like a big puzzle. Um, so that was one of my most stressful moments, but it was a cool time. <laughs> so so can, can I interrupt? Yeah, Sorry, yeah, Dan. Please. I just want to, it, I was, as I'm listening to their far better spoken than I can do, um, descriptions of the class, I could hear that someone might interpret it as, you know, that they were assisting with the class. I know that was going to be my next question. Yeah. But I really want to make it clear that we fell into roles. All of us fall into roles, but, but that, that was just, I think that's meant to really explain how synergistic we are and how, how well we work together. Everybody had major intellectual input into this thing. This was not like one person works the slides and one person works something else. This was in the fundamental design of what we did in the classroom every single day that we would rework this design over and over until we were happy with it. We took feedback from the students in the class and then incorporated it into what happened in the class. And we made all those decisions together. So it was very, very much at that intellectual ownership level. We did find our spaces in how we teach. Yes, but it's, it's not, it can't be reduced to who showed slides and who moved people around. Those were critical, but the really important stuff was how all the actual activities in the class got designed and how we designed the trajectory of the class to optimize the experience for the students. Yeah, I guess that was going to be sort of my question is, you know, Colgate prides itself on, you know, no teaching assistance. And uh, I was wondering the difference between the two, but I think you just, uh, I think you just described it. Yeah, so we can... <laughs> Right. You're right. All right. So tell me a little bit about what the students in this class, uh, what did they do? Tell me the, the students that you folks were all teaching. You guys go for it. You're speaking better than I am today. Big time. So I guess um, I could sort of give the lay of the land and then people can add in where they think. Um, but in terms of the, the major project, there were five different groups, each of which had about five, six students in it, one group with four. Um, but they were originally all tackling problems of accessibility in and around campus. And as we made the move to online, some of those shifted. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was five groups in these long-term projects and they each took little pockets either of direct accessibility issues or in accessibility online. Um, and maybe somebody else wanted to elaborate on some of those individual ones. Yeah, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the specific projects, that'd be nice. Um, I can give some of the specifics of the projects. Um, so one of our groups created a buddy system, um, and a lot of these accessibility problems morphed into some virtual setting. Um, so one of the projects was a buddy system in which through a virtual platform, um, 
older buddies could be matched with younger buddies uh, to kind of help them navigate the new COVID world. Um, primarily socially, they had uh, grappled with whether or not they wanted to make it kind of an academic setting, but they decided that um, trying to mitigate those social pressures and social stresses of being in um, the COVID realm was more what they wanted to focus on. So it was just pretty much connecting people who were lonely and might have needed guidance um, in the time of the pandemic. Um, so that was one of the projects. Does somebody else want to do another one of the projects or do you want me to keep going? All right, Rasaka waved me on. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, a second project was a resource online in which um, Colgate professors and just about anyone could get uh, learning resources on universal design learning. Um, so it's just making the classroom accessible for all different learning styles. Um, they had originally wanted to make a series of workshops to teach the professors these skills, but they decided because they weren't the experts in this field, they didn't have all the research and hadn't actually implemented any of these that they wanted the experts to do the talking. So they kind of created a, a resource for all of those resources that was easily accessible to professors whenever they needed it. Um, one group who was aptly named Time Zoom because they were in all different time zones while they were working <laughs> on this project, um, they created a resource in which students could learn about all the different resources that Colgate offers. Um, they found through their research that a lot of students just weren't completely aware of what resources they could tap into at Colgate. Um, or where to find those resources. So they created one place like a website in which students could find all the resources, where they are, how to make appointments. Um, and they also learned that it's really important to adapt to different types of um, dispersion of these resources. So they created emails and a brochure that was sent out in the mail for people who primarily get information through the mail. Um, little vignette videos for people who primarily get all of their information from online and social media. Um, so that was what they worked on. Um, our fourth out of five groups created an addendum to the third century plan, which was aimed at making Colgate more proactive towards problems of accessibility on campus rather than reactive. So they looked at a bunch of ADA guidelines, um, looked at how people at Colgate specifically in like administrative roles um, understand accessibility and what they can do to make Colgate's campus more accessible. Um, and then finally, our last group created a resource in which students could learn pretty much how to become tech technologically uh, smart at Colgate. So how do you make a bibliography online? How do you use basic like Excel and Word? How do you uh, save a room at the library and stuff like that? So a resource for students as part of the portal where they could learn about all of these technological things. And I feel like I've been talking for so long. <laughs> but that's you did a fine job. Weeks. That's a very nice summary. Thank you. I also, oh, sorry. No, go right ahead. Okay. I also wanted to talk about, we kind of mentioned mindsets at the beginning, or Karen did at least. And so the students came up with these amazing, amazing projects, but so many people who came to the end of the project garden came and loved. But I think, 
more than teaching them how to get through their projects, we help them guide through guide them through the process that helps them reach the final product. But ultimately, it's this mindset that we're teaching. So we're a team using the same mindset and process ourselves. It's our working dynamic, like one that's creative, based on challenging each other, giving each other feedback, iterating not just the project or the curriculum, but also ourselves. Um, this kind of mindset, hopefully we taught the students by using it ourselves. But kind of going back to the issue of Colgate's no TA policy, we're challenging Colgate's education system in a way that a classroom can be taught not by one person, but by a team. Um, and I hope that's something that the students um, felt as they <laughs> move forward or left this class, that this process is not something that they can just recreate on an exam or through a presentation or an essay. It's something that they carry forward with them. And ultimately, a way that we can assess how successful we were at teaching them as a team is to see how much they're able to take this mindset forward and be creative and find problems in unexpected places on and off of Colgate's campus and then to come up with creative um, solutions to that. Hmm. So I think that kind of answers both what the students got out of a class as well as how our teaching dynamic contributes to that. And I think ultimately that's really a testament to Colgate's liberal arts curriculum that focuses on the people. We're in the middle of nowhere, so the campus and the people that make up the campus make up Colgate. And that's kind of, I think, to me, what makes um, design thinking at Colgate so special, that we're taking Colgate's ultimate essence and making it a process that students can take beyond with them even after they graduate. For, for all of the students, you know, did this change how you look at your other classes or did it also change how you approach your other classes? Just, you know, talking and thinking fundamentally about the process of teaching others? Um, it definitely did for me. Um, I've found myself in a lot of like tutor roles throughout the years at Colgate, um, specifically in biology. And I did stuff with some younger children and I always thought I was like doing a good job and it was usually one-on-one, but teaching a large group of people and having trying trying to accommodate all different speeds and really just learning styles is a totally different ball game than just sitting with one person and trying to get them to understand a concept um so it made me appreciate my professors who did a really good job throughout my Colgate career a lot more um but also made me think of ways that different classes could be improved with little tweaks and how important that team dynamic is that you can bounce ideas off of somebody and you don't have to just go with the first idea that pops into your head. So at least for me, those are some takeaways that I had from this um, teaching experience. Do any of you apply, try to apply this design thinking thought to other, other things in your life? Yeah. Um, I, for one, definitely have, I'm a philosophy major. And so that's really different from a lot of things that are happening in this group. Um, lots of science here. So for me, I've, the process is extremely iterative. And so for me, even when writing papers, like I'll just iterate my paper so much more than I used to when I was a freshman, for instance. So I'll write it, I'll write it and rewrite it so many more times. Um, and I'll get a lot of feedback from people. So those are two hallmarks of the design thinking process that I've applied to something that is so different um, from, I think, what you would traditionally assume to be creative or um, problem solving. And like sort of similar to that, I found that I apply it a lot in my own work too. 
Um, in its nature, I think design thinking is pretty exploratory and any issue that you want to pursue is a good issue. So um, like I studied astrophysics at Colgate and anytime I would have a new data set or like a new problem, I found um, increasingly with my time at Colgate and also increasingly with my experience in design thinking, I would dive right into it way quicker and not think about it and just see where, you know, a train of thought leads or where, um, you know, what new figures I might be able to produce. Uh, but allowed like my intellectual confidence to increase and an acceptance that like, look, what I'm doing, I'm learning something, even if it's not getting me towards, you know, what I want to learn. Um, so I really, I really enjoy the exploratory nature of design thinking, I think. I just wanted to combine what Jacob and Jacqueline said. I've gotten better at not only receiving feedback, but also giving feedback as well. Um, I used to be scared of asking questions or challenging the professor unless I was so certain did all my homework, all my research was 150% certain. But now if I have any issue or even I don't understand what the professor's saying just because of a communication issue, I will go up to them. I will go to their office hours. I will say, you know, what you said, when you said point A and point B, I didn't understand how you got there. Um, could you explain that? And more like, I would see that more as giving feedback in a way of how the communication went. Um, and that way I got so much better at receiving feedback. I, Whenever I got really focused on a project, which wasn't all the time, but on a rare occasion that I got so married to my idea, I would get very defensive, um, whether that be a, you know, the thesis of an essay or the way a project is going. But I've been able to leverage the work I've done so far. And even if the direction of my project or paper changes completely, I'm able to take what the professor says and move it forward. I think that kind of combines with everyone's been saying, but I've become so much better at moving forward, go, being creative and not just getting, not just stopping when I get feedback and not being sure how to move forward. In uh, in 2014, uh, Professor Harp, you gave a speech to uh, a crowd of alumni in uh, New York City that was at that Innovation and Disruption event. Uh, and at it, you said, the bottom line here is that we at small liberal arts colleges should not be afraid of disruptive educational technology, but we also shouldn't be diving into this without looking where we are going. How has your work through the years uh, since then influenced your opinion of using online methods um, for learning? Okay. Well, I think I, I feel the same way as I did whenever that disruption thing was. And in the sense that um, there's a whole lot of tools out there that we haven't begun to use as fully as we could use them. I don't know what those uses are. I don't know what all those tools are, and I will never claim to know all that. But but the, it strikes me that the, the key, but I've always felt this way about teaching anyway, but it strikes me that the key to this is that you want to figure out what you want to try to do and see if the tool is out there to do it. And sometimes it can go the other way, right? You can see a cool tool and it'll give you a great idea for doing something online. But the, I think the bottom line is, is people have to explore. You have to experiment. You have to try it. And you have to have everyone on board with you, the students in your class, anyone teaching the class with you, you have to be ready for this. The administration has to be ready for it too, because you have to test drive it. You have to try it and see if it works, get the feedback. It's just, it's, it's kind of, preaching to the choir, this particular choir, in the sense of try it, get the feedback, fix it, try it again. Because some tools will work great. 
and some won't work well at all. Some will work really well for certain kinds of teaching and some will work really well for certain kinds of people teaching the class and their style and some won't, mm. right? So it's, there's no one answer. Um, if you think about what we're trying to do right now, it's, it's actually a really fast, it's unfortunate how we got here with the whole pandemic and everything. Um, but there's a really interesting opportunity here in the sense that uh, no one has tried to really, no one has really sort of in a concerted way tried to reproduce the high intensity engagement of a liberal arts education online, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you can't turn to the, to the um, scientific literature or the educational literature and find a big volume of material that deals with how to do this because no one's had to do it before, right? It's, it's really, there are certainly people who've been thinking about it and there's lots of people on the front lines of, of how to increase engagement online and, and use education or technological tools to do that. But in, in terms of this concerted effort to move this whole experience into an online setting, we've never really tried to do that. So it's a giant, it is a giant experiment. Um, it's an experiment that people are gonna have to be patient with each other as we try to make it work, as you try to find your space with this technology. So I think the, the bottom line answer to your question is that there's a ton of potential and the key is finding matching the tool to what you're trying to do and and finding those tools so the more we can help each other come up with ideas and generate new ideas and learn about what's out there the more cooperative and collaborative we are in the process the more those ideas are going to turn into things that you can actually apply and maybe even have work so i'm i'll never say that online replaces in person that's not the same thing but i think there are lots of ways to think outside the conventional online ed box. And the more we do that, the more we're likely to hit on something so it'll actually work better. What did you folks take away or what would the 3.0 version of this class look like now that you've gone through it? Um, what would you change or have you not <laughs> figured out where that's going yet? I think one thing that I wouldn't necessarily change, but would almost mandate that it's kept Assuming that we still had like, let's say, you know, five eighths of the semester in person, three eighths offline is uh, one of the things that really brought the class together and made the online portion as successful as it was, was the uh, trip that we took to Washington, D.C. So as we got into our final project on accessibility, we wanted to take a trip to a city that was known for its accessibility features or has some history there. So we went to D.C. Um, we met with a great group of people from um, the Office of Disability Rights from Gallaudet University, um, from Catholic University of America's engineering lab, this whole host of people. Um, and like the act of taking the trip alone brought the class so much closer together that by the time we went online, they were already used to having a relationship or having friendships, um, working in their groups. And so much so that um, towards the end of the semester, I'm not sure if anybody said this, but um, people would say, you know, during this whole quarantine, I've spent the most time with my group compared to anybody in my other classes, my family, my other friends. Um, they were so such a tight knit community that they were fine meeting every other day or every day on Zoom with each other to work through some of these projects. So not necessarily a change, but I think any class benefits from having a, a trip where they can form some kind of group bond. 
we've reached uh, question 13. So at the end, I always ask something uh, a little bit um, off the beaten path, uh, but I think this time it's most appropriate to ask uh, questions of everybody here as to um, what you're up to, uh, what, what, what your plans are. If you don't have plans, that's fine too, but um, how are you doing uh, in, the, in the pandemic and everything else going on in the world? Um, tell us a little bit about yourselves. I, I guess I should have led off with that, but I figured uh, the 13th question is, is generally where we go astray anyway. So who wants to go first? I vote Rosaka goes first. <laughs> go Rosaka. You've got another year, really right? Hoping I could, yeah. Um, I think that this pandemic has given me the time to literally think, just sit and think, to spend time with family and talk, just do things that you usually wouldn't associate with the summer going into your final year of college. Usually you're so busy with internships and then trying to think about what's next, what's next, what's next. But since we don't know what's next, it's really given me a chance to think about now in a way that I've never had a chance to before. Um, I am not one for enjoying the moment. <laughs> um, so just even, I read so many books, had the chance to like start running, cook, um, spend time with my family. So I think I want to continue enjoying what I'm able to enjoy right now, since I don't know when I'll stop being able to do that. But what Risako didn't say is that she, A, is gonna teach the next iteration of this class with me in the fall. <laughs> we have lots of stuff to figure out. And B, she's been totally um, uh, give, asked to do this huge job of working on the task force for remote learning to try and help get resources together and figure out how to advise people for to improve online teaching if it has to get used in the fall. So she she under she's very humble. She's a highly qualified member of the task force, it sounds like now. Indeed. Very good. How about Jacqueline? Karen, that was not <laughs> sure. Um I think since school's ended, I've just been processing, graduating. Um I'm looking forward to having some downtime as Versaco so beautifully said to spend time with family, to cook, I don't know, get outside. Um, I felt like the last week of school, I just sat in front of my computer for 24 hours straight, um, seven days a week, but I'm excited to kind of have some downtime and process everything. And then in the fall, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, I'll be starting my job at Ernst & Young doing merger and acquisition consulting, which mm -hmm. will be exciting. And yeah, I'm excited to also stay in touch with this group. There are lots of things brewing. So so I'll look forward to, to getting updates from them and hopefully staying in the loop. And what Jacqueline is also not saying is <laughs> that she, she helped run a workshop at McGill University last year for science teachers and science students using a lot of this, um, this sort of human-centered design approach. And, and that got really high reviews from everybody who participated there, too. Oh, very nice. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Jacob, how about you? Sure. So along with Jacqueline, I've been trying to process uh, ending my senior year as it did, um, but that's been fine. 
Um, since the summer started, I started an internship at uh, the Aerospace Corporation, which is uh, FFRDC for space flight and mission control system, aerospace engineering stuff. Nice. Um, yeah, so that's been a lot of fun, and uh, I get to do that until um, early August. Uh, then for the fall, I'm starting graduate school in astrophysics, um, starting the process of getting my PhD, and so I'm looking forward to that. So really, in the meantime, I'll just be still at my computer and trying to enjoy outside uh, when I can. Very good. And how about and you, Katie? What, oh, wait, wait, wait. And what Jacob did not say <laughs> is where he's going to graduate school, which is Berkeley, which mm. is really impressive in terms of, especially in terms of astronomy. And of course, that he is the only human who's taught the design class twice in its history. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Katie, you're up. All right. <laughs> um, so I had an odd experience the other day in which like I, it kind of hit me that I wouldn't be returning back to campus, um, which was very sad. So I've been trying to like reconnect with friends from school um, and also from home as I haven't seen them in like a year. Uh, <laughs> So I'm trying to do that, but I've been really itching to just kind of do something. I'm definitely somebody who works better when I have like something to do or something to occupy like the space in my brain. Um, so just trying to figure out what that thing is. Uh, I collected an absolutely massive uh, pile of books over the course of the semester, and I'm trying to very slowly get through all of those. Um, I also, as a small side note, because this has just consumed my last week, I've learned I'm allergic to wasps in the last week. <laughs> so that was really unfortunate. But you know what? This time alone is all just about learning about yourself, uh, <laughs> getting in tune with yourself. Um, so that's pretty much how I've been spending my time. Well, what do you expect, <laughs> you know? Um, what I need to say about Katie is that she participated lots of things, but she participated in a um, in a design thinking workshop that was offered by an alum, and uh, they were so impressed with her performance there that she uh, was given a job offer. As a result, they sought her out to give her a job offer. So there you go. Oh, that's great. Well, that was thirteen. Thank you very much, Professor Harp, and thank you to Rizako, Jacob, Katie, and Jacqueline. Uh, it was really great having you on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. We really appreciate that you <laughs> tolerated our behavior. Oh, no, it was great. I really <laughs> I appreciate having everybody on here. Um, make sure to download it and tell all your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions. Let us know, like send the link or something or the name or how yeah, to find Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link. Uh, you can also find it on Spotify. You can find us on Stitcher. Google Play. It's on all the uh, the platforms. So nice. Now you're supposed to say at the end. You can find. Make sure you get on and give us good ratings and good reviews. Because that's right. That's right. You can also email any questions you have to thirteen at colgate.edu. That's thirteen, the number. And as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. 
Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.